0: Hey, uh, so it's a, uh, again this week. Um, my my pleasure to uh, to introduce our guest speaker. Um, we've re- I've really really been enjoying uh, uh, Dr. Shields uh, these last couple of weeks. Would you give a warm Parkview welcome to Dr. Harry Shields? Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, welcome. Good morning. I'd like to ask you to take your copy of the Scriptures and find your way to Acts chapter 13. If you are part of the Parkview family and you've been here over the last several Sundays, you know that this church, Pastor Ray, has been taking you through uh, the book of Acts. And so I'd like to ask you to come back to the book of Acts and find your way to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. Now, we're going to be looking this morning at verses uh, 13 through 52, and I know that sounds to some of you like a very large portion of Scripture, and it is, Um, but a large portion of Scripture does not translate into a long sermon, so (laughs) relax, relax. But this is a sermon that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to I uh, ask the Spirit of the living God to give us insight as to why this sermon is in Scripture and what relevance does it have for our lives here in the 21st century. Now, even though we're looking at verses uh, 13 through 52, I'd like to take a, a small portion of that. You're going to see it on the screen here in just a moment, and uh, we're going to... Um, I'd like to ask you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 26, and I'm going to read through verse 35. This is Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 26 through 35. Would you follow along as I read? Paul said, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb." but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, this is the word of God. And the Spirit of God asks us to hear it and to obey it for as long as as God gives us life. I know I will be dating myself whenever I tell you about a game show, popular game show of many, many years ago. The title of the game show was Truth or Consequences. It was produced by a gentleman by the name of Ralph Edwards, one of the early TV producers, had a number of game shows. And, and for a number of years, he was also the host of Truth or Consequences. Now, the game went something like that. They would uh, like this. They would select some contestants. They would come on the program, and Ralph Edwards would ask them some questions about their lives, where they lived, different things that they did. And, and then he would say, now, now, here are the rules of Truth or Consequences. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to have a short period of time, which meant two seconds, to answer this question, and if you don't answer it properly, then you're going to have to pay the consequences. Are you ready? And the people would laugh. They would say they were ready. And Ralph Edwards, uh, he would ask the question. Within two seconds, of the buzzer would sound. And the people could not answer the question. And so Ralph Edwards would say, now you're going to have to pay the consequences. Sometimes it would mean they would have to be involved in some skit. They would have to go to some other uh, part of the the area, the state where the program was produced. And uh, sometimes they would even have some surprises for the contestants. Uh, They would uh, have them meet up with people, a relative that they hadn't seen for a long period of time. The show had had a long running. You know, anytime there's a game show like that, there's always a a metaphor, some truth about life behind it. Here's the truth that I'd like to present to you this morning, and that is that we are always presented with options. Uh, Tell us the truth. What are you going to do about the truth? Can you answer the truth? And if we don't, there are always some consequences along the way. That's certainly the case when we look at this sermon by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like us to take some time to look at the text, to see what Paul's doing in this sermon. On the other side of the text, I would like us to discover a truth. Specifically, I want us to try to answer the question, what are we going to do with the facts about Jesus? Then after we discover that truth, the answer to that question, Uh, Then we're going to look at what I like to refer to as touch points. How does this truth touch our lives in specific ways? Okay, that's where we're going. You can begin to hang all of your thoughts or my thoughts on those three things. What's the text about? What's the truth in this text? And then what are the touch points? How does this begin to uh, have implications for our lives? So let's start with uh, this text. You will make note of the fact that the Apostle Paul is on his first missionary journey along with uh, his friend, his colleague Barnabas. They've already uh, traveled a a period of time, and now they're headed north, and they're uh, headed into a region. They stop in Perga, and you would think that whenever they land in Perga, they would stay there for a period of time, but but they don't. They keep uh, heading north. Scholars have been thinking about this for a long period of time. Why didn't they just stay in Perga? Why didn't they preach when they were in Perga? We're also told that their other companion, their helper, John Mark, left and uh, uh, went back home. We don't know why he did that. Again, there's a lot of speculation as to why he left. So uh, Paul and Barnabas, they head north, and they eventually land in an area uh, that is identified as Pisidian Antioch. Now, this was pretty typical of Paul and Barnabas. Whenever uh, the Sabbath they came, they went to the synagogue. In almost every single city that they went to, they went into the synagogue. So uh, they come to the synagogue, and a synagogue service on the Sabbath went something like that. This, a little bit different from what we did this morning. But usually it would start out, and there would be prayers. There would be long periods, uh, periods of time in, in prayer. They would recite some of those prayers as, as Jewish people. The prayers were followed by scripture readings, kind of thing that we did just a moment ago. They would read scriptures from the law, and they would read scriptures from the prophets. And then after that, usually someone would give a sermon. Now, they didn't necessarily call it a sermon. You will notice that whenever Paul and Barnabas uh, came to this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, Uh, Antioch, that this kind of process is going on. There's the prayers, the reading of the scriptures. And then someone, they notice Paul and Barnabas, and they say to them, would you come and give a, here's the phrase, a word of exhortation. What that meant was a sermon. Now, I have never been in a situation (laughs) where I've walked into a church, and someone has spotted me and said, oh, Mr. Shields, would you come up and would you give us a sermon this morning? Thank the Lord that has never happened. I don't know what I would do in that kind of a situation. But, but that's what happened to Paul and Barnabas. Now, one of the reasons why they were prepared was because the Spirit of the living God was working through them. That's why this is sometimes called the acts of the Spirit, not just the acts of the apostles. And so the Spirit of God is working through them. The other reason is because they had the same message over and over again and we see aspects of this message. And so, the Apostle Paul stands up, and he's going to give them a word of uh, exhortation. Now, in doing so, uh, he gives this sermon. Now, I do not believe that the Apostle Paul, as he's walking to the podium or wherever he went to speak, say, should I give a two-point message? Should I give a three-point message? Which. I don't think he did anything like that. I think the apostle Paul stood up and it was kind of in narrative fashion that he started to tell the story of Israel up to the present day. Now, we could do that this morning, but I would like you to see certain things about this sermon. We're going to analyze it. We're going to examine it to see what Paul is doing. And I want you to notice there are five different parts of this. That doesn't mean that the apostle Paul had a five-point sermon. He didn't, but five different parts to it. The parts will go something like this. It starts out with reference to a calling. The calling is followed by conduct. Paul talks about conduct. After the conduct, there is reference to completion. After completion, then we see that there is conquering, and after conquering, we see that there is a conclusion. Okay? Uh, that's what we're going to look at in this sermon calling, conduct, completion, conquering, and con- conclusion. Now, we have to look at that because Paul's doing something. There's a progressive nature to his sermon. So would you notice uh, that Paul starts off and he makes reference to Israel's calling. So he says in verse uh, 16, this, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me, the God of the people of Israel, notice the next phrase, chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with, my, with mighty uh, power. He led them out of that country for about 40 years, and they did certain things, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Would you notice that phrase, however? He chose them. He brought Israel out of the land of Egypt into a land that he had promised to them. Now, some people become very uncomfortable with uh, that word uh, choosing. It wasn't because Israel was superior to every other nation. Moses makes that very clear in the book of Exodus that that simply was not the case. God chose Israel for a purpose. He gave them a responsibility, and their responsibility was to make Yahweh known to the ends of the earth. That's what they were supposed to do. That was their calling in life might I say as well, that every Christian, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility, we have a calling, and that is to make Jesus known to the ends of the earth. This sermon has an aspect to it called calling. Something else. Paul goes from calling to talk about conduct. Would you notice, beginning in verse 18, that he says, For about 40 years, he endured, that is the living God, endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges. He moves on in verse 22. He talks about the fact that they asked for a king, and then he mentions their first king was Saul, and then he says Saul was removed. He's talking about Saul's conduct. He's talking about conduct during the time of the judges, and the Jews would have understood immediately what Paul was saying. And he talks about their their conduct during the wilderness wandering. Now, why does he say that? Paul wants to point out the condition of the people of Israel, their conduct was sinful, disobedient, rebellious through and through, very much like us. And so Paul talks about conduct, talks about their calling. So after the conduct, Paul begins to talk about something else, what I would say might be one of the most significant aspects of this sermon because he goes from Saul and then he goes to David and I need to tell you something about David. In Second Samuel chapter seven, he says of David, David, uh, this is God speaking to him through Nathan the prophet, I'm gonna make a promise to you. And the promise is that from your offspring, David, you're going to have a number of kings, but there's going to come a king. And that king is going to fulfill all of the promises that I've given to you, David. Now that king wasn't Solomon, wasn't Solomon's children or the the kings after them. The ultimate king, we're going to discover and Paul's going to make known, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice what happens is that Paul's going to be using a word. I'm using the phrase, the term completion. Uh, The word you'll see here is the word fulfilled or fulfillment. Fulfillment means that something has been stated, God has promised something, time passes, and then eventually God, through someone, fulfills that prophecy. Notice how Paul puts it together. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, that is, King David, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God said he was going to do it. God did it, says the Apostle Paul, and he did it through Jesus. Would you move on to verse 27? Paul begins to account uh, recent things uh, that happened in Jerusalem. He says, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus yet in condemning him. Notice the next phrase. They fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Remember I said in a synagogue service, there were prayers, there were scripture readings, they read from the law, they read from the prophets. Probably happened that day whenever Paul was preaching and he says, this kind of thing happened. And yet, even though the scriptures were read, God said what he was going to do, the people turned against that. They condemned the Lord Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But Paul's saying just as it was written. We should have known that these things were going to happen. Drop down to verse 33. He has fulfilled, that is God, has filled for us their children by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. And he quotes from Psalm 2. He does the same thing in, in verse 34 in the second part of it. He says, as God has said, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 55. Then look at verse 35. So it is also stated elsewhere, and he quotes from Psalm 16. Here's what Paul's doing. He's showing that things have been completed. The prophets have spoken. Those prophecies have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So his sermon goes from calling to conduct to completion, but that's not the end of it. Paul also talks about a conquering that took place. Would you notice in verse 30, he says, but God raised him. That is Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Or how about verse 33 again? He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Drop down to verse 34. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. Or drop down to verse 37. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. I imagine at that point in Paul's sermon, the people in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch were shocked. This is true. This Jesus has come. He's been raised from the dead. That explains everything. There has been completion, and now there has been a conquering, which means that Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered sin. It might be safe to say Jesus has conquered all of life. He is the ultimate king. He is the one who fulfills the promises that were given to David. Now, there's one other aspect of this sermon, and it's what I'm going to call the conclusion. Every sermon needs a conclusion every people are delighted whenever the conclusion comes and certainly it comes in verse 38 notice just one word therefore and he goes on to say therefore my friends therefore my listeners and paul goes on to show the implications what he's been saying is hey do you, do you listen do you hear what i'm saying the facts are mounting up everything is pointing to jesus everything is pointing to jesus And so whenever he says, therefore, he is basically saying, what are you going to do with Jesus? I have a concern at this point in time, and here's my concern. I've been praying about this uh, before I even came this morning. My concern is that some of you right now are listening and you're saying, "Uh, we've heard this kind of thing before. Uh, We've heard about Jesus, but why are you telling us again? Why do we need to hear this again? Hey, uh, it might seem like a silly analogy, but, uh, but I'm going to give it anyway. Assume that uh, a, a young woman goes off to the university and uh, her mother calls her frequently. And uh, one day in, in November, uh, the mother calls and she says, Now, honey, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you're going to get a flu shot. And the daughter says, Mom. Every week that we call, every time I'm on the phone, you keep asking, have I gotten my flu shot yet? Why do you do this? Honey, it's very important. You don't want to get sick right before finals. And they hang up the phone, and the daughter says, oh, why does she always? But you know, I don't want to get sick right before finals. I need to do something about this. And she begins to respond to the information that's been given to her. Or, Or take another silly analogy. A son talks with his father regularly, and the son happens to get a new car, and the father says to him, boy, that's a nice-looking car. Well, son, you know what? You need to change the oil in that car every 3,000 miles. And the son says, Dad, I'm 42 years of age. (laughs) You tell me this all the time. And the father said, well, I'm just telling you, you want the car to last for a long period. You need to change the oil every 3,000 miles. And, and they kind of part their ways and kind of chuckle. And the son says, you know, he's right. <laughs> I do want this car to last for a long period of time. And the information says, I should change the oil regularly. I, I neither act on it or, or I don't act on it. That's what Paul is doing here in verse Verse 38. For the people in Pisidian Antioch, it was a brand new message. They hadn't heard this before. Some of you have heard it over and over and over again. You've heard it many different years for a long period of time, and you're saying, why do I need to hear this this morning? And for some of you here this morning, this is maybe the very first time you've ever heard this stuff. Remember I said we're gonna start with the text and then gonna lead up to a truth? Here's the truth. It's the only thing you really need to remember this morning, and the truth is this. The truth that surrounds Jesus, the truth concerning Jesus always comes with serious consequences. The evidence that is presented about Jesus always demands a verdict, always, always. Whether you've heard it a hundred times, whether you've heard it for the first time, you can't simply walk away and say, well, this doesn't really matter to me. It does matter. It matters. It's a life and death situation. Because the truth about Jesus requires that we make some decisions because there's consequences involved. Hey, bear with me just a little bit more because there are a couple different kinds of consequences. When you look at this sermon and you see what Paul's saying from uh, verse 38 on, you discover that there are positive consequences and there are negative consequences. Let me talk about the positive consequences for a moment. Paul, you'll notice in verse 38, says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. We'll come back to that. Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is set free. Would you notice that word believes? Everyone who believes, very important word. It's important because sometimes we think that to believe something is, it kind of go through a cognitive process in our heads. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, I, I guess I believe that. And and we kind of nod and we're in agreement with what we think other people believe as well. That's not how Paul is using this term. I like to use a term trust or entrust. That is, if these are the facts, then I entrust myself to the facts and I act upon what I know. Again, simple analogy. Some of you, every weekday morning, you get up, you get up very early and you travel to a train station here in the area, maybe the Glen Ellen train station, and you maybe catch the same train every morning. Let's say that one morning you decide you're going to sleep in just a little bit longer. You can catch a later train. And so you get up and you say, I wonder what train I'm going to catch this morning. And you pull out your wallet or you look in your purse and you pull out what, one of these little pamphlets. It's about half a mile long. And you look at it, and there's a schedule, and it tells you when, when the next train will leave from the Glen Ellen station. And it might be at 7.20. And you say, that's the train I'm going to catch this morning. You fold up that little pamphlet, put, put it back in your wallet or back in your purse, and you head over because you believe that the train is going to arrive on time, it's going to leave on time, it's going to arrive in Chicago on time. You have entrusted yourself to the information on that document. When Paul says, every one of you believe, everyone who believes on this, certain things begin to happen. There are positive consequences. That is, we have the information. We not only have the information, say that's good information, it seems rational, but we also begin to say, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to do it. God's speaking through this now notice what some of the positive consequences are the first one is found there again in verse 38 there is the positive consequence of forgiveness therefore my friends Paul says I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses interesting word forgiveness has the idea of of something being sent away. In the Old Testament, we talk about the scapegoat. Uh, The priest would put their hands on the goat as if all of the sins are being placed on this goat, and the goat was shooed away, sent away, as if all of the sins are gone. Paul's saying, in Jesus, all of our sins have been sent away. Can you imagine that? Every sin in the past that you or I have ever committed. Uh, Every sin in the present. Even some of the things you said in the car on the way to church this morning. Those sins are forgiven. Every sin in the future, they've been sent away. And God will ne- never bring them back into our lives. The evil one might try to do that, but God will never bring those sins back into our They've been sent away. We've been forgiven. We've been free. Notice also that Paul also seems to imply there's kind of a new purpose for those who follow Jesus, who believe in him. I'm saying that because of what Paul says, round about verse 47. He takes a a, a statement, a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 49, and he says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us, meaning all of the Jews. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul seems to be taking that, and he is applying it now to the apostles, to all of the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's saying, we have a new purpose in our life, to take the gospel, the good news, to the ends of the earth. Everyone who is a believer, a Christ follower here this morning, that's our calling, to take the gospel to our neighborhoods, to our communities, even to the ends of the earth. We have a new purpose for our lives. And did you notice how this the sermon, or, or this section ends in Verse 52. It says that Paul and Barnabas, as they're leaving, as they're being sent away, uh, that something happens to the disciples. Here's what it says. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joy sounds like kind of an emotional thing, a happiness. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy is an inward confidence that no matter what is swirling about us, God is still in control. And we have that peace. We have that joy in our hearts and our minds that God is still in control no matter what might be going on in our lives right now. What's going on in your life right now? What are you facing in your life? It might seem overwhelming except for the fact that the Spirit of God comes and in Jesus reminds you that God's in control. And he gives you that joy and that peace that he wants every believer to have. You see, the truth about Jesus, concerning Jesus, always comes with important, serious consequences. There are positive consequences, and then, as I said, there are negative consequences as well. What might they be? Notice that Paul uses Scripture from the past, and and would you notice in verse 40 what, what he does? He says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. What did they say? Verse 41. He quotes Habakkuk chapter one and verse five. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am coming to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Here's Paul with the good news and he attaches a warning sign to it. And he said, if you walk away and you reject this message today, I want you to understand that just what happened to our forefathers when the Chaldeans came down against them, Habakkuk and others said, "Oh, this can't be possible. God wouldn't allow this to happen to our country, and it did. They were targeted for judgment, and a person who rejects the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're targeted for judgment, the wrath of God." I've never served on a jury. I've been called for jury duty, but never have served in a jury. I know a little bit from watching TV like you that certain things happen. And after the case rests, the defense rests, the prosecution rests, uh, here's what usually takes place. The judge will give the jury some orders. And he'll say, now you go into your deliberations and and it's expected you'll come back with a verdict. And so they'll go. And sometimes they might decide in a short period of time. Might be a long period of time. If it's a long period of time, the jury might say, listen, we would like to uh, see the evidence the prosecution presented again. And then he might say, oh, we'd like to see the evidence that the defense uh, presented. We'd like to see that again. And so here's all of the information that is laid out before them. And somewhere along the line, I know, I know you'll tell me there can be a hung jury, but somewhere along the line, the jury has to render a verdict. And that's the way it is this morning. Some of you have heard this information over and over and over again. Have you rejected it? Every time you've heard it, the gospel comes with a warning sign today. Back in 1741, there was a sermon that was preached in Enfield, Massachusetts. Some would say it may be the greatest sermon ever preached in America. The preacher was a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards uh, Edwards is actually the pastor in the town of Northampton, but but he was in an itinerant ministry at that period of time, went to Enfield, and, and, and he preached, and the name of his sermon was, the title was, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You read a title like that, and you say, oh, my goodness, he must have been jumping around and yelling and doing all that. That's not what historians tell us. They tell us that Jonathan Edwards had a manuscript, and he stuck to that manuscript. He read from that manuscript. And while he was reading, every so often he would look up because as he read, there were people in the congregation, some were crying, some were crying out, some were pleading for mercy as he read his sermon. And there were others who were praising God for the fact that salvation had come to them. It's a great sermon, a great revival in that congregation. Now here's what's interesting. Historians also tell us that two weeks earlier, back in Northampton at Edwards Home Church, he preached the exact same sermon. Nobody cried out, to our knowledge. No changes seemed to take place. Maybe at the end of the sermon, some people said, good morning, pastor, nice sermon today. Hope you have a good week. (laughs) I hope that does not happen at Parkview. There's someone here today, don't know who it is, who is outside of Jesus Christ. And like all of us, you desperately need a Savior. I need a Savior. And this sermon says to us, believe, and you'll have the forgiveness of sin. You'll have a new purpose in your life. You'll have a joy beyond what you could ever imagine. Doesn't mean there won't be any problems in your life. But if you've never trusted Jesus this morning, would you trust the Lord Jesus? I know there are elders here. I know there are other people in this congregation who would count a great privilege to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus, truly follow him. So, here are the facts. Render your verdict. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us, and for those of us who know Jesus we give you praise. We give you thanksgiving. We rejoice in the fact that you've given us new life. In fact, life forevermore. But Father, for someone here who does not yet know Jesus, we pray that you would bring them to understanding and that for all of those who have been appointed for eternal life, as Luke says, would believe. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.